This edition of the Union's 21 podcast was recorded before the dreadful acts that took place on 15 March. We send our condolences and sympathy to all those affected by this terrorist activity and stand in opposition to Islamophobia and racism wherever it occurs. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Union's 21 podcast, your regular digital download of all that's good in the trade union world. With me, Simon Sapper. And me, Becky Wright. And in today's programme, we're going to be talking to the PSA, the Public Services Association of New Zealand. Think it's far away? Think again. They've got stuff that that actually we're crying out for. Collective bargaining for self-employed workers, platforms that look after their workers rather than exploit them. It's all coming up in a great interview with Kirsten and Andrea from the PSA later in this episode. Simon and I flew out especially to speak to the PSA. I'm <laughs> so jealous. There wasn't room for me on the plane. <laughs> we, we both, listeners, we both wish. We, we, we both wish. But yes. I, I mean, uh, something, something that straight away is interesting about the PSA of New Zealand is, is that they're really hot on inclusivity, aren't they? They've got the Te Runanga section specifically to encourage and, and, and make sure the Maori voice is represented. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have always really admired and uh, been really interested in how the New Zealand unions have been integrating Indigenous uh, and Maori workers into their structures and how I think the union themselves say talk about the union being bicultural, which I think yeah, is yeah. really, really lovely thing to hear. And I think, I mean, I can't talk on behalf of the union at all. And as an outsider and as a British person, what I find really lovely and really good about this and kind of as it should be about this, it is that there has to be recognition on behalf of our kind of colonial past in certain countries, you know, in countries, you know, being British, that's pretty much most of the, <laughs> most of the world. <laughs> Some of my American and Irish friends like to point out to me and Canadian friends. And actually, you know, in some instances and in some em- uh, countries of the old empire, unions were a force to keep out the indigenous workers. And we don't have a, an illustrious history in terms of in- inclusivity about this. And and what you see from the PSA, like you do some from other New Zealand unions, is this isn't just lip service to oh, the is, indigenous population. Yeah. This is a real separate structure that's based on the culture of, of the Maori. And I think it's a really great thing and it and it was lovely to dip our toes very slightly we've got some serious debts that we need to repay you know and and, and actually yeah. this, this is a way in which that that starts to happen yeah but before we get to new zealand both metaphorically and and in terms of this podcast there's quite a lot been going on closer to home uh, and something that caught my eye was the news that from the 4th of March, it's virtually impossible to have a zero-hour contract in Ireland. Uh, and this is hailed right, as, a, as a real breakthrough for the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. Um, and so, so it should be, except, Becky, except, mm. you've seen the tweets like I have saying, saying zero contract, zero-hours contracts banned in Ireland. Actually, they're not. Um, there are exceptions. So, for example, if you're a casual worker, if you're a short-term worker, if there's an emergency, you can still be employed on a zero-hour contract. But what the Irish law does uh, is rebalance the working relationship more in favour of a fair distribution of power between 
the worker and, and the employer by basically saying to employers, if you're so badly organized or so badly, in, you know, intentioned that you're going to call people into work and send them home before their shift is finished, if you're going to offer them so many hours and then not honor, honor that commitment, then we're going to have you. We're going to have you in mm. terms of saying you've got to pay your workers either 25 percent of the possible hours or 15 hours, whichever is the lesser. But the rate of pay is three times the national minimum wage. So for the people who are most vulnerable, most precarious, I think that's a big step forward. I What I find really interesting about this is th- this is some of the stuff the TC have advoca- uh, advocating, have been advocating as well around kind of minimum standards. And, uh, and also, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I also think that the, the Taylor recommendations uh, oh, I, I know when we spoke to Matthew, he was uh, ages and ages ago, he was talking about some kind of recognition for being asked at the last minute to come and and work and how that can be adequately compensated. I'd love to know more about this. And I think this is very much something we could explore on the podcast, you know, going forward. Well, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the other thing that hit my eye today as we're recording is that the PDAU union, the uh, Pharmacist Defence Association union, have uh, had the results of their ballot at Boots. Regular listeners to the podcast will remember that we had an interview with Paul Day from the PDAU talking about their recognition battle at Boots, where there was a, a, a union I use inverted commas with that, uh, a management kind of union put in place. And the uh, PDAU actually broke ground by getting the CAC to officially de-recognise. And part of that process was an all-encompassing onslaught by the union to get people to go and vote and educate their members and educate the workforce around uh, voting you know, to de-recognise and to pass the thresholds of the CAC. And today they have uh, announced the results of the recognition ballot. So after doing all of that work, the union then put in their recognition request and had to go through another ballot. Uh, We're going to be talking to the PDAU in one of our first kind of follow-ups in the next couple of weeks. But just to say that they had... 3,229 people vote yes for union recognition of the PDAU, which is over 40%. Only 266 people voted no. They had over the amount of people who needed to vote. That's a fantastic result for the PDAU and something that we'll be talking to them about very, very soon. Well, I mean, to get a turnout of above 50%, above 50%, uh, in, in the union ballot these days is really good going and to, to actually smash the legal threshold that they needed to of getting a 40 percent yes vote that's a, that's a, that a, that's a great achievement I mean, this has been this has been, uh, this has been like dancing through a legal minefield for, for, for Paul Day and his colleagues so they've done brilliantly to to, to kind of get, to, get across the finishing line basically you know, which is the like, largest employer they had a very specific bargaining unit you know let's be clear about this one but people who work in retail essentially you know one two maybe at the very most in very large boots I would hazard a guess three pharmacists do you know what I mean this is a kind of an atomized workforce yes, it um, is, it is. It, so I think it there are going to be some fantastic lessons to be learned from this and we should be talking and celebrating this success it's a 
brilliant piece of work uh, by them. So congratulations to all who have been involved. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And from one bit of positive news to a whole kind of raft of positive news, I suppose, as we get to our discussion uh, with Kirsten Windelove and Andrea from, from the Public Services Association of New Zealand. A very different landscape to the one we look out on. Quite literally. As we'll hear. I was looking on um, on YouTube to see how to say uh, the plural of hello in Maori. Well, you can say tina, tina kōrua because it's, um, there's two of us. Yes, that's what so, I was trying to work out. <laughs> Andrea, Kirsten, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on an appallingly grey, cold, rainy evening here in London. Well, and you're going you're gonna to tell me it's a lovely spring morning, aren't you? No, no, it's autumn and it's hideous. So there's a <laughs> giant northerly belting down Wellington Harbour and I've just biked head and straight into the headwind the whole way here and I'm feeling quite battered. But yes, <laughs> it's not cold. <laughs> Um, the evening is all the better for talking for, for talking to the two of you, and thank you so much for making time to, to, to join us. I think I suppose listeners might be unfamiliar with uh, the, the Public Services Association of New Zealand, so perhaps the starting point is, is just to describe your union, uh, who it represents, and your role in it. So um, we were founded in 1913, which is about when our, our public service was founded as well. And basically, we were founded by a group of um, civil servants who came together and they wanted to influence their working conditions. And now we cover not just people working in what you would call the civil service, but also all of the allied health professions working in our health service and people working in local government and also people working in services that used to be done by the state but have now been contracted, like a lot of care work mainly and disability support work, those kinds of things. And we also have a sprinkling of members and non-governmental organisations and things like that. Within, within the PSA, I mean, that's such a broad canvas, I suppose. There must be lots of organising challenges and services, serving challenges and also the need to innovate, consciously innovate to try and meet those challenges. Yeah, so we've worked hard to try and develop a strategy that goes across our membership as well as having really focused sector focuses as well. So we have developed um, some form, four formal strategic goals about uh, basically building our union, about uh, having better public and community services, about um, transforming work. We, we don't have a small ambition on that one. And I've missed one. Oh, equal pay. There you go. Because everybody wants all of those things. All of our members want all of those things. And then those, so that you have those kind of four broad aims, and mm. then each different sector has its own focus. That's right. So we have this, we've had a really strong, strong equal pay focus in our contracted care, the sector that has all the contracted care people in it, and we've made some right. fantastic gains there around regularising people's work, um, and around uh, getting people paid for travel time, and also the, there's a massive equal pay win here for care and support workers as well. So that's been a big focus of that sector. And now we're working into, in fact, uh, you might want to talk, Andrea probably want to talk about um, the work we're doing about for people um, working for platforms in that sector as well. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I think this is something that, like, unions across the piece are trying to grapple with, blue collar, white collar, doesn't really matter where. This platform working has kind of almost taken the elements of, of that day job, you know, like pick people up from various places, shifty 
the kind of the poor aspects of what we thought was past types of work mm-hmm. applied it to the 21st century and um, so what is is this the work that you guys have been doing with the my care platform Yes, yes. Um, Since round about a week, we have been engaging with a platform that established or was established to provide services, as Kirsten mentioned, in the disability area and support support area. And we started off with bringing different unions together and also the CTU, the Council of Trade Unions in uh, New Zealand, which is our (laughs) umbrella body and people from the platform, but also workers who were involved with the platform and workers, support workers who were engaged with a regular provider, if you if you want. And we had very intense discussions, as you can imagine, and we shared our different uh, perspectives and also objectives of and, and values, I think, as well, very important. What, what work meant for us really went back to the basics. And from those discussions over the last year, we um, managed to sign an agreement that will um, help us to progress our work and establish a basis to continue to work together and In that agreement, we have a few aspects around, or one important one is around um, sharing information about workers to access workers in order to get in touch for the union. Another one is, um, another goal is to enable full participation of workers on the platform uh, in the future. And of course, to ensure advances in terms of working conditions. So we are very, very happy with that. We'll see where it goes. Nothing is set in stone yet. We don't have collective agreement or any any of that at this stage, but an agreement to work together and to find a way that ensures that workers are protected and can join unions, but also to ensure that the services provided via the platform are of high quality and um, relevant to people. Okay, so so my care is a social in, uh, social platform, isn't it? Which is around delivering care to uh, to people in their their homes. Yes. Um, and and so what you guys have have done then is so is it like a coalition of unions and interest groups that have come together to organise uh, my care? It is the agreement that you've got. It's not a collective agreement, but but is it kind of almost like a uh, I don't know, an access agreement or a kind of uh, understanding arrangement? Is I don't know how else to kind of put it. Yeah, exactly. You know, like a first step to a collective agreement. Yeah, well, the first step of, of many more to come, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, I would I would say it's a it's an agreement which enshrines a common understanding of how to move forward together and sets out with the employer. With well, they wouldn't see themselves as an employer, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, as a as a driver, maybe, and an influencer of of and facili- facili- facilitator of of work. So yes, my care is is on board with this, and yeah, we are trying to. It's it's slow progress, really, and that's why I yeah, mentioned yeah. maybe a first step of many others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the spin-offs of this work with MyCare has been that they've been contracted 
by the equivalent of your Department of um, Work and Pensions to um, develop a platform for what, what are called job seekers nowadays, otherwise known as people who don't have a job or unemployed people, so to a, a work finding platform. And so because we've been doing that work with MyCare, we've been able to get in there and we are working with them right now to ensure that that, that, um, that app for job seekers has um, content on workers' rights, on access to unions and all of that kind of stuff. So that's a benefit of having done that work with that platform. Uh, I suppose the... The collaboration between the unions in the sector and the club and being able to engage the employer um, are probably, as you said, Andrea, you know, initial steps with many more to come. But but, you know, big steps to, to uh, necessary steps to, to take. Are you are you are you confident that the that the employer is able to to engage constructively with you when you get to the next stage, when perhaps it starts getting a little more challenging, you go beyond a common understanding of work to start saying, actually, you know, we've got lots of members here now. We want a formal recognition deal with you. Or is that is that going to be a, 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 a big challenge, do you think? Well, we don't need a recognition deal here because we have recognition in our legislation, by legislation. So that's something that has changed for us pretty recently. So we have a new government. Well, it's been around, it's been in for 18 months now. And it's a, a progressive left government led by the Labour, New Zealand Labour Party. And what that one of the th first things they did was to change some of the worst th changes that have been made to our employment legislation by the preceding Conservative administration. And so now, actually, we have the right of access to workplaces, and we we have recognition by right. So all we need is is it three? I can't remember now. Anyway, a small number of um, members <laughs> working somewhere, and then we can initiate for a collective agreement. We don't need wow. the employer does not need. And is that is that a sort of quasi judicial process? Because you'll be aware probably in the UK we too, thanks to a Labour government uh, more than twenty years ago now, a formal right to recognition. But there are all don't sorts get of me barriers that the employers can put in the way. But you, but you have to you have to people have to vote. Oh, you've got a threshold. We just go in there and we say we're initiating. We write a letter and we say mm -hmm. we're initiating bargaining for a collective agreement. And then we go in with our right of access and into the workplace, wherever that is, all around the place usually, and and organise the members who want to get involved. So that's wow. a very very different from what you've got. And maybe yeah, I like yours. I like your way better. <laughs> so it's so, pretty... so an employer can't can't just come back and say, well, we think that's rubbish. We're not gonna we're not gonna do it. They they have to recognise. They have to agree to an agreement, basically. Um, they don't have to agree to the agreement, um, but they have to mm -hmm. enter into a process of bargaining in good faith. So we have a good faith requirement in our uh, legislation. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, uh, sorry, Simon. I was going to say, what, what, what's, the, uh, what's the penalty if they don't? Well, <laughs> good question. Not really anything. But there, there has recently been, for the first time, an employer has been basically forced to enter into a collective agreement well, one's been basically written for them by the by the courts. That's the first time that's ever happened, and there are other things connected to that situation that make it a bit unusual. But um, but so, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we that collective bargaining is easy or that it's concluded yeah. in a timely way. So, for example, our members who work in district health boards and in our in our hospital system, our equivalent in the NHS and administration roles, they've been uh, in a process of bargaining for a year now, and the employer is just simply not turning up. So it doesn't wow. always mean that <laughs> doesn't always mean it goes smoothly, but we do have we do have legal means for that. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that right of access makes a difference. And so did you, you had it and then it got taken away and now you've got it again. We had it and then it was, then the right was restricted. We've we've come out of having nine years of a conservative administration and now we're 18 months into a progressive administration and they've changed, made changes to, some changes to our employment laws to roll back some of the bad things that the conservative government did around restricting right of access. So uh, you, officials used to have to get permission from the employer to go into a work site, stuff like that. Um, and yes. um, so we had 90-day trial periods that people could, where you could be fired at will within that time. That was rolled back. Um, you had no right to rest and meal breaks other than through trying to enforce it through general health and safety stuff. Um, and that's been rolled wow. back. Um, so And the stuff around collective bargaining has been shored up a bit, but not as much as unions wanted. Um, it's a compromise. Yeah. Right, and, okay. and, and, and these things these can, things can be traced back specifically to the change of government. That's right. Um, the other thing that we've got now is that um, anyone who, who um, comes to work at a place that has a collective agreement, within the first period of their employment, they have to be they have to be offered that collective agreement and the, and the opportunity to join the union. Of course, um, generally people are just told that there is a collective agreement and they're not really offered the opportunity to join the union. But then that's our job, isn't it? That's our job, and um, to get yeah, in yeah. there and, and contact them and um, and join them up. Yeah, yeah. So, do you think that period of time when you had the Conservative government forced your hand, the collective hand of unions, to kind of try to innovate and look at things afresh, or did it feel like it was such an onslaught that you didn't get time to kind of look up and think? Oh, you know, how could we do things differently? We've done quite a lot. I think the union movement in New Zealand has done quite a lot of quite cool stuff during that period. And actually, we've had some really big wins, which we keep forgetting about. (laughs) And then we look back and think, wow, we do that under that environment. You know, was that supposedly a hostile environment? And look what we achieved. You know, we achieved um, our biggest ever equal pay settlement. That's amazing. You know, we've achieved... Um, we've, well, we've helped to achieve uh, a, a legal right for people suffering domestic violence to get support at work and, and take leave. You know. Oh, I know, I so, love that. Yes, That's it's amazing. amazing. So yeah. it's not that things haven't happened. And actually, some we've done the union movement done quite a bit of policy development. Um, so it was ready with well, almost kind of ready with proposals <laughs> um, when we when we got a more friendly government um, around. A whole, proce- a whole system of um, industry-level bargaining, which we don't have yet, but we're in the process of discussions about. Um, so there's yeah. been quite a lot of stuff going on. And unions here uh, have been looking around the world and look at the great stuff um, unions over there are doing, and we're really keen on connecting with unions in other places to learn from what people are doing and, and trying, to, yeah. trying to change what we do so that we're more effective. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think this is the thing, isn't it, is that we're all in a difficult situation in various different ways. And unless we connect with each other and talk to each other about the, the challenges we face and either how we're able to address it or the things that we're not addressing as well, we're not going to progress as a movement because there's an element of reinventing the wheel, but also just not being able to kind of be reflective and also... I like, you know, the solidarity in real in a real sense, do you know what I mean, of everybody kind of having a bit of an issue and sharing that and hearing the best practice and just trying to sort of progress what we're doing. And one of the things 
that I think has recently changed as well is, is around the hot. So there's two things really, I suppose, that we're really interested in. The change in the Hobbit's law, which of course mightily amuses me as a term. And um, also the stuff around fair pay agreements, okay. fair work agreements. Yep. Okay. So let's talk about that. It, it, so Hobbits. So Hobbits. So Hobbits yeah. are, are um, small creatures with hairy feet. Um, and who originate from New Zealand. <laughs> well, well, indeed, from, apparently. From Middle Earth. Apparently. <laughs> Middle Earth. Yeah. So, uh, is, and people might remember your, that. You should count your blessings. You should count your blessings about having Middle Earth in New Zealand, because <laughs> all we've got down our part of the world is Game of Thrones. You've also oh my got... God, I actually think that's where we're at now. New Zealand is in the in, is in the Shire. They're for unions. They're in the Shire, and we are in whatever it is in Game of Thrones. Oh I think my that God. adequately says the situations that we're in. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, guys. Sorry. <laughs> Go on. Yeah. So um, a, a while ago now, some movies were made in New Zealand. Mr. Tolkien's books were made into movies here, so the Hobbit's books. And that was a really big thing here because we're a small country and suddenly we had a movie industry. Well, there was one before, but we had a much bigger one. And um, so in our government at the time, which was a conservative one, um, they wanted they wanted Warner Brothers to come in here and really support that production. So basically what they did was they did a deal with Warner Brothers to do away with employment rights for anyone working in the screen industry in New Zealand. Um, there were a lot of people here who were quite annoyed about that. <laughs> um, not yeah, least, uh, so our, our late um, Council of Trade Unions president, Helen Kelly, who was an amazing, amazing woman, oh, an amazing yeah. champion she, for workers. She was indeed. Yeah. yeah. So she stood up um, basically to the government and to Warner Brothers and um, called that out for not being right. But it was really interesting the way that that whole thing about the Hobbits, the Hobbit movies, which are obviously from your part of the world, um, yeah. <laughs> somehow became connected with our with our New Zealand identity for, for some people. You know, I guess they see the movies, they see the big mountains, whatever they see. You know, and so it became yeah. a kind of a war about unions versus the New Zealand way of life, which was really weird and very difficult to deal with as a movement um, to find ourselves in that spot. Anyway, so they took yeah. away the rights of an entire um, industry, workers, an entire industry, just like that. It basically is a dodgy deal between um, our government and Warner Brothers. And so one of the things that our new government wants to do, of course, is, and unions want to do, is roll that back. So they, one of the first things the government did was bring together a working group of, of employers from the film industry, you know, some of the, the movie houses and the direct employers yeah. here, and of, the, um, of equity here, um, our actors' union, and also the screenwriters and all, you know, the, the, all the unions, the relevant unions. and. Yeah. And what they've worked together to come up with a deal, basically, which hasn't, as Andrea was, um, which hasn't actually been um, converted into legislation or anything mm. yet, but it's basically come up with a set of recommendations mm. to give back some rights of employment to people working in the film, in the screen industry. Now, it still doesn't make them employees again, because basically our legislation mm. was changed to exclude them from the category of employment, which was really full on. Wow. Yeah. But it, well, it, it I mean, does... it's, it's, it's almost like it's almost like the deal that the government of the day did with Warner Brothers was to almost create like a, a free trade area. Yeah. Except it wasn't a free trade area; it was a free trade industry. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, almost put like putting a ring fence around the film industry and saying yeah. like, anyone who's working in this industry, you've got no rights. It's, yeah. uh, it's it, scary stuff. It scary was scary. Stuff, well, I was going to say, did it did it affect the way employers were looking at? other industries and, and did it affect the, the way that 
you guys kind of thought about the work that you were doing at all? Well, one of the things that Helen Kelly, who, as I said, is, was a former president of our Council of Trade Unions, one of the things that she said was that it gave employers licence to um, treat workers badly, that that was the signal, the leadership signal, basically, from our government, that that's what that meant. It meant that actually you didn't need to Aww. treat people with dignity um, and you didn't need to treat their unions with respect either. So, But um, in terms of ongoing impacts, I think that because it was contained in their industry, I, I don't know if it spread too much. But it was part of that whole environment of hostile environment. Yeah. Just wanted to mention one of the recommendations, which is quite outstanding, I think, and that is that contractors are allowed to bargain collectively. Oh. And that would mean that they could um, bargain for a collective agreement, if you like, or a collective contract for a specific occupation in that industry. Really ironic because when I was reading up about it, and they were saying that they were saying the employers were threatening to actually film over here if this deal was done, and I thought, yeah, but we have quite good unions here in that sector as well. You'll still need to engage with them, yeah. Well, <laughs> but if, if that's if you want to do that, and that um, Ian McKellen's just been part of Equity's 90th birthday celebrations. Do you know what I mean? I just it seemed almost like a like a, you know it's a real threat. It's people's jobs that are being threatened, but in such a spurious way because they'd have to they'd have to deal with unions if they came over here as well. Um, and so one of the really interesting things that's happening in New Zealand at the moment that I've sort of seen is this these fair these fair work agreements. Could could you guys talk a little bit about that and how it impacts on the work of the PSA? Well, I guess the the starting point for them is that is the low level of union coverage and the actually that hardly any workers really do have access to collective bargaining either here or in the UK because of that. Yeah. Um, and so what it is is us trying to find a way of extending the benefits of collective bargaining to people who are not who are not covered within traditional areas of union coverage or existing areas of union coverage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the idea of fair pay agreements as well is to complement the highly company-based bargaining with industry-level bargaining, which doesn't exist in New Zealand. So the and and that ties in with what the film industry working group uh, recommended, right? We are talking about collective contract there for a whole occupation and in this case yeah. it would also be occupation or industry where the fair pay agreements would apply and yeah so far again the, a working group was established a tripartite working group and they just published recommendations on how a fair pay agreement system or an industry level bargaining system really uh, could be designed, um, what the scope would be like, and also how it would be implemented and um, realised. And we are still waiting for the government to respond to that. But sorry, I was, I was just going to say, sorry uh, to cut across you, Andrea. I was, it seems that the, the, the government has essentially said to employers, you've got to get your act together. You've got to behave responsibility. You've got to collaborate. You've got to, you've got to come to the negotiating table to sit across from the trade unions and work out a deal that's good for everyone. 
you know, were the government in the UK to do that, it would be fantastic. And all, I have to say, it would also be a shockwave to industry because our employers yeah. are really badly organised. <laughs> and that's part of the problem about uh, that we have in trying to negotiate. There's no one to negotiate with often. And one of the things yeah. that you might find interesting is that the person who's chairing that process is actually a former Conservative Prime Minister of New Zealand, which seems wow. outrageous, doesn't it? I don't know if you can imagine... I don't know, Margaret Thatcher popping up, oh, obviously that's not going to happen, and um, chairing a tripartite group. But that's effectively what's happened here. Was he like your version of Margaret Thatcher? Well, no, he's more. Our, he's our version of John Major. I was going to oh, I was going to, listen, you know, I was going to go with John Major. I, t- I, tell you, I, tell you, I tell you, from where we are now, you look back at the major years and thought, that was, that was, they were benign times. They were. But anyway, that's another story. And, so, so that, so um, <laughs> I just thought so that I completely forgot what I was going to say. Um, oh yeah, the employers' organisations. Then, so I mean, do, do you have kind of decent employer side organisations in New Zealand, or is this something that's going to have to grow in relation to these new agreements? One one important uh, recommendation of the report is to enhance capacity and capability of the social partners, of the employers and of the unions. So I would actually um, say what Simon just described in terms of um, the employer's capability in or capacity as well in, in the UK is very similar to what we face over here. So the employers' organizations are... They're lobby groups. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. They're not as well established as as they could be, I suppose. So the government's yeah. got other stuff that it's doing that's going to try it. That's trying to get them to step up and and work on things as well. They're reviewing yeah. our holidays yeah. legislation, and yeah. employers are expected to step up and engage with that. We've got a um a, cli- a climate change a just transition summit coming up mm. that. Because our government's also said we're going out of oil and gas, so that's a big transition for the region of New Zealand where people right. produce oil and gas. So there's going to be a just transition summit there, and again, it's an opportunity for employers to step up and engage in a tripartite way. So there's lots of they're trying to create opportunities for that. It's not working really, really well yet, but the opportunities mm. are being created. Yeah. And I guess incentives to see how valuable that kind of work would be to engage tripartitely into discussions, working groups, and all of that. So, interestingly, though, the the uh, Arden administration is a is a it's a coalition, isn't it? Effectively, I mean, she's not quite Labour doesn't quite have a majority. So, what work is being done to embed these kind of cultural changes in employee relations in New Zealand? in such a way that they could survive a fall of the government mm. or change of, a change of government? Well, that's the very difficult question because, mm. um, as in the UK, we're the same here. Um, you get a change in administration and their approach to employment relations completely changes. You know, we have no consensus around that. You know, we're not a Europe. <laughs> we're not like most lots of places in Europe where that's the case. And we don't have yeah, we don't have that kind of ballast there of those strong that strong history. So... Basically, the fair yeah. pay agreements thing, if that if that is legislated for, then I guess they could just undo it. Having said that, there are some things mm. that the previous administ- the, the, the Labour administration before the one we've got now, you know, way back when, Clark yeah. administration, there's some things that they did that, surprisingly, the Conservatives did not undo. So whether right, or not right. they'd roll back the whole thing, I don't know. The just mm. transition stuff, maybe that's... 
if they see, I don't know, maybe if employers see enough interest for them in that, maybe that's something that will endure. I don't know. Yeah, one of the interesting things as we kind of come to put together our initial report for our commission on collective voice was is is kind of how the relationship between the employers organisations as employers organisations, not as lobby groups or trade groups, and the role of unions and their relationship together. And one of the case studies we've got actually is in our health sector. And the thing that's and, uh, and one of the things that, that strikes me with that is how both the employers organisation and the unions almost kind of demonstrate the worth of that their system together. Yeah. That, that they have to it, it's still tripartite in as much that they go to government for certain things but government is and isn't really part of the overall process it's there it's in the background because obviously mm. health is funded by government yeah but the, the the two groups kind of come together to justify their existence yeah. almost yeah. and i keep mulling over in my head to what extent that having these employer organisations that are proper employer organisations working with unions kind of demonstrate the value of, of of that, if that makes any sense. I think you're right. Whether those are the sort of changes. Yeah, and the, I think that work that employer employer organisations and unions do together and when they when it produces good outcomes, I think that does demonstrate the benefit of it. So one of the things that we've been trying to do as a union consistently um, over the last maybe, I think it's almost 20 years now, is to build in tripartite arrangements with uh, industry groupings of our employers. So we have set up a, an enduring um, tripartite body within the health and within our health system, just like um, like what you were describing. We've also in our in our yeah. civil service, we've had one that never it never survives a change in government, but we've re, we've revitalised it again now. So we're rebuilding that arrangement, and that's a painful process, but it's happening. And we're also um, developing an arrangement with our science organisations. We're, we're trying to build a tripartite arrangement there with our science organisations and with local government, which is a big challenge because, ah. as in the UK, you know, every every council is its own world. Mm. And so that yeah. we're trying to bring those councils together in a tripartite body, which is in its early days. But that's that's one of our strategies, Becky, is to try and to try and build yeah. that capacity and the capability on both sides and do that. Yeah. Ah, that'll be really interesting to hear a bit more about how that happens and kind of how it how it progresses as it goes goes on. Indeed, I mean, I think the fundamental difference, um, Becky, I don't know if you feel the same way as we sit here in the rain swept, cold, dark. Is actually actually the whole kind of orientation of what you've been saying to, saying to us is a very positive one. It's an expanding one. It's a constructive one. It's it's, it's growth, and there's energy that feeds feeds that growth, uh, and and that's really that's a really welcome thing to hear because sometimes you know metaphorically it can feel rather dark and that that, that, that we're struggling to we're struggling to get up to the light so well, well we so have a we that, have a Simon, we, we have a growth problem um the psa has a growth problem our growth is outstripping our resources so because wow. we're oh, recruiting drag, we're drag. recruiting recruiting <laughs> recruiting the people in our who administer our membership system are um overworked yeah. So we're recruiting at a really fast rate at the moment, and we have over the last we've it's just kind of been ramping up over the last maybe five years. So that's happened not just um, under our more positive government, but also in that more hostile environment. And yeah. so one of the things, of course, that does 
for the union is that we have to rethink basically our business model and not in a big way, but in small ways. So of yeah. course we have an organizational yeah. review going on <laughs> and we have to rethink <laughs> how our elected structures work. And especially, you know, with the hopefully increase in members coming in who are not in traditional employment, how they, that they're, they're going to interact with our, with our elected structures as well. So our governance yeah. committees are all thinking really hard about that yeah. and trying to work out yeah. what yeah. we should do. Um, but we we have with our membership. I don't. I can't remember the the rate increase. But it is every time we we have print our membership forms, which we still do naturally print membership forms. Um, we have to change the the number of you know join X thousand yeah. other people. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so that, it's it's um it is quite an exciting time. But it means you really have to do a lot of work internally as well as we have to do a lot of work externally at the moment because we've got all these opportunities. Mm. So it makes you super yeah. busy. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Um, so that this is gosh. where loads of people from the UK then start readying their passports to go off to New Zealand. <laughs> well, we do have vacancies, so if you're interested. Um, in fact, in fact, everybody from the UK loves Nelson, and we have a vacancy there at the moment. Nelson's a sunny, warm place at the top of the South Island. It's beautiful. It's a wine-growing area. Um, we have an organised vacancy right. there at the moment. <laughs> I, 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 you, you don't need to advertise that one. I'll, I'll email my CV to you once we've finished. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Andrea Kirsten, thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been it's been it really has been a window on a, a very different landscape to the one we usually look out out on. And um, uh, we wish you every success in in managing the uh, the challenges of success. Hey, and a big guys, a you. big shout out to you guys. Um, we love Unions Twenty One. We love the work you're doing. We love your podcast. And people over here do thank do you. listen. So thank you very much for all the good stuff you're doing. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you. That's set me off nice for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> thank you we're, for we're... staying up late at night doing this all whatever time of day it is. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> Not I've got that late. Bedtime, so I'm massively happy. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. As 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 we said when we were talking uh, to the two of them, that is a really different kind of view uh, of the industrial relations landscape. But of course, it, it, you know, there's some very the, the stuff they spoke about. The MyCare platform, for for example, Becky is 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 a bizarre yeah. thing for, from from British eyes, anyways. Well, do you know? I think there's so many threads that you can pull out in that discussion and to think about the translation over here and the MyCare platform was one of those as I am currently doing some research on platform working and, and what platforms look like, which is essentially that the MyCare platform is a platform without providers. So the idea behind it is it links workers with people who seek support. And then the people who are looking to employ the, the, the carer contacts them themselves. Essentially, there's no employer involved as the PSA kind of sees it so their agreement with my care sort of provides for this working towards fair working conditions for everybody whether they're directly employed or contracted out and joining the union is kind of seen as part of that package and it has just made me think about the idea I suppose I'm going back to Sweden again about like no platform is born and created equal there's a difference between those kind of platforms which are about a platform for work which doesn't set rates and platforms which very much set rates 
and how we view employers and how employers view themselves and how we can can manoeuvre ourselves around all of these differences. I think it's potentially something we've all got to trial and see and experiment with. But I just am really I was really interested in the fact that the union didn't or at least from what we heard, didn't necessarily turn around and say, no, you are an employer because of X, Y, Z. They said, right, okay, fine. We can't make the case at the moment for you being an employer, so we're going to build a relationship with you to try to kind of involve the union in what's going on. It's very interesting about, as you say, not not all platforms are the, are, are the same. And what makes them different, uh, there's a whole bundle of things there. It struck me this is this was kind of more, more like eBay than Uber. Or, 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 or <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it, it, it's, a, yeah. it's sort of... It's not entirely neutral, but it's it's certainly not the same as the the, the platform work, workers that we traditionally see in the UK. I yeah. mean, the other, you know, the other one of the other big takeaways that that really caught my mind was the idea of, of collective bargaining for freelancers and self-employed in the in the film industry is still only a proposal. You know, I hope very much it's going to get ratified as soon as possible because that's a. A, that's morally a great moral victory after the Hobbit's Law stuff, and and B, you know, in terms of an organising model, in terms of being able to find that thing that that can unite supposedly disparate and independent workers. That's really very important, I think. Yeah, yeah. It was a fascinating conversation, and I'm so glad we could find the time to chat with them and make the technology work. Make the technology work, despite the 13-hour time gap as well. It was all a bit, <laughs> bit, bit, bit bizarre. <laughs> Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed uh, what you've heard. It's been our pleasure to have your company as as ever. If you have liked what you've heard, then please do rate and share us on the podcast provider of your choice. You can say hi to us on Twitter at Unions21 and you can email us and let us know what you particularly liked or didn't like or would like to see us cover at info at unions21.org.uk. But until our next episode, everyone, it was lovely to be with you and it's a goodbye from me. And a goodbye from me as well. Bye. The Unions 21 podcast was presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. It was a Makes You Think production.